0: So, um, I, I guess one of the huge experiences of who we are as people is this ongoing desire for some sense of connectedness. If we think about those of you who are old enough to remember the 90s dot com boom, one of the things that we saw in that particular era of time was this great hope for the internet. The internet was going to change all of our lives and there's this massive investment, huge investment in the dot-com bubble and then it all seemed to collapse. The reality is, of course, that the first thoughts, the first ideas were absolutely right. We perhaps just didn't quite know at that stage how to utilise the internet. But if you think about how you Utilise the internet. I guess for many of us, for many of us, one of the ways that it has really opened up is our our, our our ability to be connected in remarkable ways. A sense of belonging, a sense of connectedness. No matter no matter what age we we are, there is the opportunity. To be connected in ways that we never thought possible. To keep up with things uh, in, in a way that we never thought possible. Isn't it interesting that being connected is written into us? I was We were chatting to somebody um, just a couple of days ago. Rachel and I were in a cof- cafe and we, we were chatting to a friend from years ago. And they were talking about the mum. Mum is into her 90s and uh, she Facebooks and she... She, uh, she's just uh, got into Googling stuff and all of that kind of thing. And I'm thinking, how cool is that? That here's somebody who, who texts the, the grandkids and, and all the rest of it and is just so connected uh, and opens up a way to be connected when historically, I guess, that particular phase in life might actually have experienced a si- significant level of disconnectedness. You know, that that time in life where perhaps mobility becomes more difficult and the opportunity to connect with people reduces. Isn't it amazing the way the door opens for more connectedness with the development of the Internet? It's not the Internet that I want to talk about, though, this afternoon. It's that deep, innate sense of desire that we have to be relationally connected. We have that written into us, don't we? I guess the truth is, though, just straight up front, for all the desire for that, for all the opportunity for that, there is an ongoing sense of some level of dissatisfaction. It gets there. It's great. It's wonderful. It's better than it was, but it's not quite satisfying. There's always that extra dimension that we are looking for. One of the storylines that we see laid out in the Bible is that the message of the Bible is about spiritual connectedness. Ultimately, the opportunity for you and I to be spiritually, relationally connected with the God who made us. That's, if you like, if you think about one of the, the big banners that sit over the top of the bible that's one of those banners that we could put in place essentially how do we become connected relationally spiritually and eternally connected to the god who made us how does that work out how is it that you and me as ordinary human beings who are thrilled at the opportunity of being able to keep up with pictures on a facebook post yet have a deeper sense of a need for connectedness. How do we become connected with the God who made us? I guess one of the things that we see in this little section is that we're talking about, and we'll see how it unfolds, we're talking about the opportunity for connected with God, opportunity for an an individual who is at this moment in his life Experiencing a profound level of disconnectedness. See how that works out. For those of you who um, have been able to keep up with the story so far, that's great. We'll just give a quick uh, review. Two brothers, Jacob and Esau, a father, Isaac, uh, and uh, Esau is the older. We saw last week how significant it was for us to be, for the historical uh, ancient pattern of primogeniture, the passing down to the oldest. We see that, in, in a sense, uh, God had promised a, a rupture in that plan, uh, that actually the blessing was going to be to the younger one, to Jacob rather than to Esau. And there's a whole pattern of uh, behavior which tries to force that issue. Uh, and, and Jacob and his mother, Rebecca force the issue by deceiving the father. And Jacob now gets the blessing from Isaac, that should have been for Esau as the older one, having already tricked well tricked, uh, forced his brother, in a sense, in one sense, uh, his brother sold his inheritance for a bowl of soup, so he sold his inheritance for a bowl of soup, and now he's being tricked out of the blessing from the father. So there's the, there's the family situation. Not surprisingly, that results in a huge uh, fracture in relationship in a context where it would not be unusual for that fracture to result in physical violence and even death. That's exactly how it works out when Rebecca hears that uh, Esau is determined to kill uh, Jacob. And so, Jacob, as Rebecca speaks to um, Isaac and says, You know, this, this, this son of ours, Esau, is going to marry these local women rather than marrying from our own family. Just imagine how terrible it would be if uh, Jacob did the same. So send him away. Isn't it amazing the way the deceit continues? There isn't that straightforward open. The reality is one of your sons is likely to kill another of your sons. Therefore, let's just get him out of here. But the deceit continues. She uses the behavior of Esau as a way to persuade uh, Isaac to send Jacob away, which is precisely what he does. He sends him away uh, on a, a single individual journey, no, nobody with him, um, to go to Laban, Rebekah's brother, Uh, to go and to find a wife there. But essentially, Rebecca has got this added desire, get Jacob out of here because Esau is going to kill him. So she sends him away and Jacob is now traveling through the desert, through the wilderness lands, through the scrubland by himself. Isn't it fascinating? From the idea of gaining an inheritance, from the idea of gaining a blessing we now have this guy experiencing a profound level of disconnectedness as he now travels alone, wondering whether he will actually make it on this dangerous journey by himself to his Uncle Laban to try to find a future for himself. doesn't seem as if all the plans have worked out, does it? What we also see in this preliminary... Is on the one hand, if Jacob, for all of his confused uh, desires to to kind of force the issue and all of Rebecca 's deceitfulness, there is written in to Jacob uh, a recognition of his heritage. He understands who he is in the life of his father, Isaac, and in the light of his grandfather. Abraham, and therefore he follows through with the pattern of going back to his uncle Laban to try to find a wife, which is exactly what happened for his father, and his grandfather left that place with his wife. So he has a sense of connectedness. Look at how his brother Esau responds in verse um, verse 8. Esau then realized. So Esau finds out that his brother has been sent away. And he's really angry. He's really frustrated. He's unhappy with the way it's worked out. He learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him to Padan Aram to take a wife from there and that when he blessed him, he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. So there's the context. Esau knows one of the things that my father is really angry about is the Canaanite women that I have married. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Esau. Isaac, sorry. So he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath. And then just, that's the kind of con. Just remind ourselves. Who is Ishmael? Ishmael is Isaac's estranged, violently fractured relation brother. There's crisis. There's enmity. There's strife. They hate each other. Look at what Esau does. He understands already how he has upset his father. Now, there is is some debate about how this text is to be interpreted. Does he do a good thing or does he do another offensive thing? My conviction is he does another offensive thing to his father for this reason. The text works like this. He went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the sister of Nabaiath, the daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition... To the wives he already had. That's how the text works. So he does this in relation to the wives that he already has. That's how it works. That's how it's being described. He knows that the wives that he already has are the wives that displease his father. And therefore, it seems as though his decision is filled with rage, filled with fury. I am now going to do the next thing to reinforce to my father my displeasure at the decision that he has taken, so I'll go and marry a daughter of the family line that is hated. It's a little question about his behavior before, isn't there? You know, the fact that he's willing to not really be concerned about his inheritance so he sells it for a bowl of soup. The fact that actually the only thing that he really wants is his father's blessing. But now he finds himself in that strange situation. His brother has gone. He's the one that is left with his father. And the decision that he takes when he is left with his father is to crank up the animosity. Here we have this Narrator just throwing us little lines to say what is the heart of these two men. One is for all of his crookedness. One is at least trying to get a handle on his heritage. The other is using every opportunity he can to decisively put stakes in the ground in front of his father to say I want nothing to do with it. So what we see is the heart revealed. When we read this on face value, it seems as though Esau just gets the raw end of the stick. It really does. He's tricked. He's He comes in hungry. He's got all of these things going on that are militating against him. He's got a mother who's kind of working in the background, hidden against him. Poor old Esau. The reality is the narrator is trying to help us to see this is not an issue of actions. This is an issue of the heart. And the issue of the heart is that Jacob, for all of his crookedness, his heart is set before God and Isaac... For all of his desire that looks as if he's concerned about his heritage, his heritage is actually purely self seeking. And when it all goes wrong, he has no love for his father. That's the background that we see. So Jacob is now on his way, walking through uh, the wilderness. This little story he gets to a place where he. It's getting dark, gets a stone, lays it on the floor, and and presumably, uh, you know, I'm guessing, don't really know, there's no no ancient um, evidence of using stones as a pillow. There's nothing there that makes sense of this. So let's just piece it together. Let's just imagine what it must have been like. Jacob gets to this patch of ground and it's ty- it's dark, it's, he's tired. I, I'm guessing, just by looking at it, he's probably a, a, a lie on his side kind of guy. You know, do, how do you sleep? Do you lie on your front? Do you lie on your back? Do you lie on your side? I'm guessing he's a lie on his side kind of guy. So he lies on his side and his head's like that. So he grabs a stone and he moves the stone and he puts his coat over it and he just finds himself a place of comfort. Nothing special it 's nothing amazing there 's nothing kind of super spiritual. He gets a stone and he puts it on the ground and he lies on the, on his side that 's my interpretation of what 's going on he 's just trying to make himself comfortable, and yet the narrator is throwing a little extra line in, which is saying, to be perfectly honest you don 't get yourself particularly comfortable with a stone as a pillow, do you so there 's two things he 's trying to find comfort and at the same time. <laughs> He's in a pretty rough place. He's in a pretty rough place. He's by himself. He's disconnected from his family. He's disconnected from his heritage. All of his hopes for inheritance and blessing have fallen apart. And he's lying in the dirt with his head on a stone pillow. I reckon at that point, at that moment, in the dark, which is, let's face it, all of us, Know what it is like lying in the dark. There is a sense of poignant isolation when we lie in the dark, isn't there? When all of those things of the past, when all of those questions and decisions that we've made, they're the moments when they really creep up on us, aren't they? When we're lying alone in the dark. When we have that sense of by ourselves. That's the kind of picture that the narrator is trying to put into our minds. I reckon that at at this point, Jacob feels desperately alone. Jacob feels desperately disconnected from his heritage. And therefore, Jacob feels desperately disconnected from God's promises. From everything that God said he would do. The first thing that we see, therefore, is God renews the covenant. God renews the covenant. At that moment in time, look at verse 13. Jacob is asleep and then he sees this vision of a stairway to heaven. And in this vision of this stairway to heaven... He has this idea of the glory of God. Something breaks into his thinking. And then a voice, the Lord at the top of the stairs says this, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. Wow. In the dark, by himself, head on a stone pillow, I'm the God speaking to you now. Isn't that breathtaking. And which God? The God of your heritage connectedness. The God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. That God. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north, to the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. (laughs) Isn't that mind-blowing? With your head on a rock, feeling desperately disconnected, And God speaks. God's repeated this promise again and again and again. Something about things being repeated. Everything that we learn, everything that we learn in one way or another, is because it is repeated unless you've got some sort of genius photographic memory. But it's some kind of repeated, however you learn. Whether it's because you read something and you have to read it and read it and think about it, whether it's because you're a a visual learner and you watch something and it's watched again, whether it's in a sporting context and it's drills that you go through again and again and again so that you are just fixed into that way of performing and delivering in a particular way, you're just used to it. Do you think God is saying something to us here? I think God is saying by repeating it again and again and again, he's saying, look, you need to understand who I am. You need to know what I am like, and I am prepared to repeat it again and again and again. I am the God who makes promises and delivers them. Now, at that moment in time, that is profoundly important for Jacob when he's by himself in the dark, disconnected, On a journey by himself with nothing that seems to be the fulfillment of the promises. He needs to know that. And God is willing to do it again. Isn't it also amazing? Jacob, the deceiver, still receives the promise from God. You would have thought, wouldn't you, in human terms... Well, he's done so much now, he's blown it. He's behaved in a way which has forced the issue. It's resulted in him having to run away, and he's blown it. Is it dependent on Jacob, or is it dependent on God? If there's one message that God is reinforcing, again, it's dependent on him. What about your life? What about my life? I guess that many of us feel a sense of connectedness, a sense of relationship because we trust and we believe in Jesus and yet the lives that we live as we've been looking at this day, over these past few weeks, we realize we believe the big things and yet fail to deliver on the day-to-day small things. That's what Jacob's problem was. He understood the promise, but then he tried to force the issue because he believed that he knew a better way to do it. He didn't trust in the little things. And it's the little things that in the dark of the night, when we're by ourselves, are the things that that Satan, who's the accuser of the brethren, the one who'll come alongside us and say, call yourself a Christian? Call yourself a Christian, do you? And look what you've done today. Let me just remind you, in the dark of the night, while you're lying there, looking up at the ceiling, and you're thinking to yourself, I, I, I know I trust in God. I know that I believe that Jesus is my Savior. And then, almost as though the, the scene is being played out in front of you, in your mind, you, exact, you have exactly the pattern that must convince you that therefore you cannot possibly be a believer in God. Because look at how you've lived today. Jacob, I'm convinced, must have at that moment before that promise came through, been lying there thinking, look at the way I've behaved. Look at the way it's worked out. And God comes and says, it's about me. We need to know that, don't we? Day to day, we need to be reminded it's about the promise of God. It's about the fact that he will deliver because he's that kind of God. The next thing we see, if we see covenant, we also see connection. We've got this stairway. I I guess most of you will have heard the phrase, Jacob's ladder. I remember when I was a little kid, Jacob's ladder, because that's very often what this is referred to. Um, I remember in, at home we had this wooden ladder, and uh, it, was, it was kind of one of those wooden ladders that when you look at it, you think, do you really go 35 foot up in the air on that thing? It's, got, it's kind of a bit green and slimy, and it's got these wooden rungs across with metal supporting them underneath, and it creaks a bit when you stand on it. I had this image in my mind that Jacob's ladder was this colossal ladder reaching from the ground right the way up to the up to the sky and somehow they were climbing up and down these ladders because it was referred to as Jacob's ladder. <laughs> the narrator has already placed a stepping stone for us to prepare us for this incident. As we've been working through, we haven't had the time, but if you work, for, work through from the very beginning of Genesis right the way through to this point in time, there is another moment where there is the idea of a tower or a set of steps, you've heard of a ziggurat, great big uh, um, pyramid type shaped building with steps going right the way up, commonly built in the ancient world. We have this great set of stairs that are being built in a place called Babel, where God's Uh, looking uh, at the way humanity is behaving. And there we see it in uh, Genesis chapter 11, where the people say to themselves, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heaven so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the whole earth. So here's the people at that moment in time saying, let's let's create an identity for ourselves and written into their thinking is the way that we create an identity for ourselves is being connected to the divine, to being connected to heaven. That's how we're going to make our name for ourselves. In other words, we can build a tower that takes us up to heaven and we can effectively bang on the doors and say, here we are. We've made it. This is our identity before you. We are connected. We're connected to you. We've made it. We've reached it. We're knocking on the door and you've got no choice but to answer us, God. That's the attitude that Babel brings. (laughs) And God comes along and he wipes it out. And yet what we see here is exactly the reversal of that crisis. The reversal of that crisis. Because as God wipes it out, we read in Genesis chapter 11 verse 8, The Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city." In other words, blessing from God? No, a scattering was the result of trying to reach to heaven. But, when God reaches from heaven down to earth, there is not a scattering, there is a gathering. That's what God says. As He says it to Jacob. You look at this stairway that I create, reaching from here To you, and you will be the way in which there will be a gathering together again of the people from all of the nations, from the north and the south and the east and the west, and the numbers will be beyond counting, and there will be a great blessing for the people of the world, not because you've reached up to me, but because I've reached down to you. Now, what the Bible is saying is get that in your brains. Get that in your brains. Get that fixed in because it is the single most important aspect of this bit of the story, this bit of the narrative. You will never reach up to me, God is saying. You will never build a a flight of stairs to reach from earth to heaven, but I can reach from heaven to earth. I can reach you, but you can't reach me. That is astounding grace, isn't it? Jacob wakes up and he says, Wow, this is amazing. This is so incredible what's going on here. I didn't even realize it was just me going to sleep at night with my head on the pillow. And this is the house of God. Bethel. Bethel. Home. House. Of God. That's what he calls it. This is the house of God. You know, Jesus says... Remarkably, there's another kind of house of God. There's another dwelling place of God. What is the house of God? What is the idea that continues? Where does God dwell? Well, Jacob, at this moment in time, says God dwells in this place because there's a stone here. But as the storyline develops, God dwells in a temple. God dwells in a a tabernacle first. And then God dwells in the temple. But ultimately, God dwells with human beings in Jesus. That's the ultimate picture that we see. And Jesus says, John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus says this, destroy this temple, Destroy, destroy this house of God, destroy this dwelling place of God, destroy in a way this battle, and I'll raise it again in three days. they stood outside the temple. Everybody's, and Jesus looks at the temple, which took hundreds of years to build, and he says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they look at him like he has gone out. What are you talking about? The dwelling place of God, the temple, it's taken years and years to build this and you reckon that you can build it in three days? (laughs) Absolutely. Of course I can. Because the real dwelling place of God, the real presence of God is not in a place of stone. It's in the embodiment of God the divine on earth. You see, ultimately, the Lord who is at the top of this flight of stairs ultimately descends the stairs and comes into the world. How do we, the Bible is saying the same question throughout as one storyline, how do we get spiritually connected to God? How do we make spiritual connection? The story says quite simply, Jesus is the spiritual connectedness that God forges by coming down to us, by reaching down to us. To one man in the desert with his head on a pillow, having vision of a visibility between heaven and earth that he knows that he never can breach, and God says, Don't worry, because I'll reach down to you. Now, the thing is, Jacob responds in commitment. He says, If this is how it, work, how it truly is going to work out, then I'm going to commit myself. Look at later on uh, in verse uh, 20, he says, He made a vow, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, that's how desperate he was. So that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and all of you will and, and, all the, and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. In other words, Jacob re- understands, if this is what God is like, and if God fulfills His promises, then my necessary response, my necessary response is to respond in worship by placing my trust in giving to this God. I give my hope, my being, to this God. And that's exactly how it worked out for Jacob. The difference for you and me is quite simply this. We don't need to strike that kind of deal with God. Jacob is at that very early stage of God revealing himself again. God communicating again to this world. Is God the kind of God who keeps his promises? Well, if God keeps his promises, then I'll commit myself to that God. We don't need to make that deal with God because God has already manifestly delivered on his promises. Unquestionably. Absolutely. So our necessary response is to give ourselves to Him. To trust in Him. To give to Him. In the sense of my whole being. What's giving a tenth? In that agrarian world where there is a fear of survival, to give a tenth is the possibility of dying. That's what giving a tenth meant. Now I've got 90% of my food. Can I, can I actually live with 90%? The 10% might be the difference between life and death, but I'm giving it because I trust that God will sustain me. How do we work out that kind of giving? Whether it's giving monetarily, well, whether it's giving in time, whether it's giving in relationship, all of that kind of giving, it's quite simply a statement of faith. It's a statement of faith. I believe that God will sustain me. That's what it is. I don't need to keep a hold of it. It's a statement of faith. Because this is the God who keeps his promises.